Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with Julian McWilliams from The Globe. He's down in Fort Myers, so we'll get the scoop on everything going on with the Red Sox. As we're getting close to opening day in Major League Baseball and some good vibes from this Red Sox team. So we'll see if those vibes are actually really as good as advertised. We'll chat with Julian in just a little bit. So I did want to start with the Celtics because they had a much-needed bounce-back win against the lowly Blazers on Wednesday night. And I really can't believe how bad that Blazers team is. They came into last night 27th in defense, but it looked worse. Just to put it into perspective, the Celtics took 25 wide open threes in that game. That means the closest defender is at least six feet away. The Seas, by the way, they didn't shoot well on those open threes, just 20%. But that's pathetic. If you look at it from a Blazers perspective, the Rockets gave up 20.6 per game, the most in the league. The Blazers gave up 25 on Wednesday night. They were not playing any defense whatsoever. That was absolutely a pathetic effort from that team. Anyway, I found that's just a digression. I found Joe Missoula's press conference very interesting last night. So he said this unprompted after the game. I always had a question about like when we shoot a lot of threes and miss, everybody asks me questions. But when we shoot a lot of layups and miss, nobody says anything. Just because you're closer to the basket doesn't mean it's easier to score, end quote. I just found this bizarre. So it was almost as if he wanted everyone to know that, hey, this is why we take so many threes. Like that was the point he was making. But what I find interesting about this is the Celtics last night took a ton of shots in the restricted area. They took 26. Now, It's more than the Celtics average. There are 23.9 attempts per game in the restricted area, which is 23rd in the league, as we mentioned the other day. But that 26 number would rank just 18th in the league. So still below average. It's not like they were getting a lot of shots at the rim. The Celtics, by the way, in the restricted area last night were 19 of 26, which is 73.1%. 73.1% in the restricted area. That would be the best in the league by a wide margin. 
So I get the Blazers flat out suck, but I don't know why his reaction after the game is why aren't people asking me about missed layups? They shot 73.1% in the restricted era. If anything, last night should tell you, hey, we should take more shots at the rim. You shoot better than the league's best last night. You should get to the basket more, right? So if you look at it, by the way, the Celtics shot just 36.7% from deep last night, which is just slightly above the league average. And remember, as we mentioned off the top, 25 of those were of the wide open variety, where the closest defender is six feet away. So it's basically like shooting and shoot around. So you had the easiest three pointers last night. And that percentage that you shot would rank around 11th in the NBA. And by the way, getting back to those restricted area numbers, right, where the Celtics were taking shots close to the basket. If you take out Malcolm Brogdon, the Celtics were 18 of 20 in the restricted area. 90%. Your two best players in terms of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown were 9 of 10. So 90% of the shots they took in the restricted area they scored. Malcolm Brogdon was one for six. That's the only guy that was missing near the rim. So Missoula asking about the layups. What question do you want to be asked after that game, right? Why is the question really would be, hey, why is Malcolm Brogdon having such a bad season shooting at the rim, right? It's strange. Brogdon is shooting 55.6% in the restricted area this season. Of players that have attempted at least 150 shots in the restricted area, only LaMelo Ball, Dylan Brooks, Darius Garland, and Jaden Ivey are shooting worse, right? Most of these guys are small guards with the exception of like Dylan Brooks, who just sucks as a player. But I don't know why Brogdon is having this difficulty shooting around the rim because he drives, he puts a ton of pressure on the defense. Sometimes it does feel like he seems rushed because he's going so hard and he just kind of hits it off the backboard. But everywhere else, he's shooting 45.2% from floater range, 47.1% from mid-range, 42.2% on corner threes, and 45.9% on above the break threes. This isn't supposed to be like an indictment on Malcolm Brogdon. I just felt like it was odd that... This was like the conversation last night. So I think sometimes with Brogdon, maybe it's those wrong foot layups. He goes too fast and all his other numbers are elite, like his pull up threes, 44.9%. That's unbelievable. So it's just, it's an odd development that Brogdon is missing so often in the restricted area. But circling back to Joe Mazzulla, if you look at what happened last night in terms of the missed layups he's referencing, it's one guy. It was Malcolm Brogdon, Jason Tatum in the restricted area is really good. Jalen Brown in the restricted area is really good. Malcolm Brogdon missed 83.3% of your shots in the restricted area last night. That's it. That's the guy that was missing in the restricted area. So this whole conversation about the team missing layups, it was one guy. So I don't know why he would reference this last night. Did he want us to ask about Malcolm Brogdon and find out, hey, why is Malcolm Brogdon shooting so poorly in the restricted area? If you want to have a discussion about Brogdon struggling finishing in the restricted area. I think it'd be interesting to get Joe Mazzulla's take on it, but I don't know why he pointed out the layups in general last night. That was just bizarre to me because they had a really high number in the restricted area. And by the way, the Celtics, their drive game last night was very successful, like trying to get into the lane, get to the basket. 35 points off drives last night, and they shot 63.6% from the floor. So if you look at those numbers in the league, OKC leads the NBA scoring 35 points per game on drives. So the Celtics would have tied that last night. And if you look at Dallas, they lead the league in terms of percentage. Their shooting percentage off drives, 55.1%. The Celtics were at 63.6% last night. So getting downhill and getting to the cup, getting into the restricted area, it actually worked. So I have no idea why Joe Mazzulla was so gung-ho about, uh, gung about pointing out why aren't you asking me about missed layups? It, like, that was one of the worst nights to bring that up. I don't understand why he said that whatsoever. Anyway, so 
One thing that's bothered me this season, and I'm sure a lot of you guys, and by the way, great bounce back for the Celtics last night. They needed this win badly. That was what I categorize as a professional win. That is a really shitty team on the other side, and you made sure that they look shitty and you look really good. That's a professional win. But just some of the issues this team is having right now, and this one has been going on all season long, and I'm sure you guys have noticed this too. It seems like late in games, the Celtics go into what I would like to call a prevent offense, right? <laughs> like we talk about the prevent defense in the NFL. The Celtics go into a prevent offense. They're just trying to take time off the clock. So I tweeted this out on Wednesday before the game. So entering play on Wednesday, the Celtics by quarter, first quarter, 30.3 points, which is third, 100 point, uh, 118 rating, third, second quarter, 30.3 points, second. 119.8 offensive rating, third, third quarter, 29.2, 10th in terms of points, 117.7 in terms of offensive rating, which is 11th. Then you go to the fourth quarter. So you go from elite, elite to well above average. Then the fourth quarter comes. The Celtics, 26.2 points per game, 28th, 111.0 offensive rating, 22nd. So you fall off a cliff in the fourth quarter from an offensive perspective. And here's the thing that happens. The pace dramatically slows down in the fourth quarter. So pace just means the amount of possessions that you'd have over 48 minutes. So in the first quarter, the Celtics are at 102.70. That's seventh. In the second quarter, they're at 100.67. That's 17th. In the third, 99.64, 16th. Okay, so way above average, average, average. Then in the fourth quarter, their pace drops to 94.15. That would be 27th in the NBA. So they're playing at the 27th pace in the fourth quarter of these games, the Celtics are. Now, the Celtics last night, they did not really, the fourth quarter numbers aren't relevant because Smart didn't play, Tatum didn't play, Al didn't play, Jalen didn't play. Now, the pace was better, by the way, but you can't judge it against a team like the Pacers. So this is something that I'm just monitoring going forward. Are the Celtics going to continue to play this prevent offense in the fourth quarter? Because this team, as we've seen lately, they're blowing leads left and right. Now, they've been a good clutch team, which is games that the margin is less than five points with five minutes remaining. They're 21 and 10, although not good lately. They've dropped their last two clutch games. But I believe they're letting teams back in these games in the fourth quarters because they let their foot off the, the gas. There's no reason the Celtics should be 22nd in offense in the fourth quarter when you're third, second, and 10th in the other three quarters. And to me, the thing to point to is the pace, the fact that they slow the game down. You're not doing what got you the lead. Get back to what got you the lead, which is play fast. Stop playing slow. Okay, another thing I wanted to bring up is Jason Tatum, who comes back on Wednesday. Huge bounce back night. He goes for 30, 11 of 17 from the floor, 6 of six of 10 from deep. So that comes out to what? 64.7% from the floor, 60% from three-point territory, and 82.4% in terms of his effective field goal percentage. So tremendous shooting night for Jason Tatum. And as great as Tatum's season's been, it's not always been the case that he's shooting the basketball well, right? Like we see games all the time where he does shoot the ball well. Pre-All-Star break, the Detroit game comes to mind. 38 points, he's 15 of 24, he's 6 of 10 from deep. The Charlotte game, 41 points, he's 13 of 21, he's 5 of 10 from deep. Even the other Charlotte game, which I think is the best game he's had all year, 15 of 23 from the floor, 7 of 12 from deep, he goes for 51 points, okay? So we know he has these type of games in him where he just goes off from a shooting perspective. But for a guy that looks like a great shooter, we see really bad shooting games from him a lot, right? Just look at the two games before Portland that he played in. The Nets lost, he's 12 of 30 from the field, 6 of 17 from deep. Against the Nets, he was 0 of 7 from three-point territory. How about the previous Nets game? 6 of 18 from the floor, 1 of 9 from three-point territory. Or I should say that was the previous Knicks game. 
So he has a lot of those games too. Now, the good thing for Tatum is this year, he is helping them win in other ways when his shot's not falling with his defense, with his playmaking. So this is not supposed to be a whole indictment on Tatum. It's more of a question, but it's worth mentioning that his shooting has been really poor this season. And I really thought those numbers would take a big jump and they've barely moved up, right? So Tatum this year is shooting 46.3% from the floor. So if you take the top 30 players in the NBA that qualify in terms of field goal attempts per game, Tatum ranks 18th of those 30 players in field goal percentage. The players below him, Anthony Edwards, Trey Young, Terry Rozier, Clay Thompson, CJ McCollum, Kyle Kuzma, Jalen Green, Paul George, Keldon Johnson, Tyler Hero, Jordan Clarkson, and Anthony, uh, Anthony Simons. So mainly guards, right, in that group where Tatum is. So you look at some of the other top tier players in the NBA in terms of their field goal percentage. Luka is at 50%, LeBron's at 50.1%, Giannis at 53.9%, Shea's at 51 Curry's at 496 and remember, Tatum's at 46.3%. So he's well below the elite scorers in the NBA in terms of his field goal percentage. That's what I think is like the next thing in Tatum's game is just being more consistent with his shooting. He's taken a major step from a playmaking perspective. He's been a great defender for a couple of years now. His off-ball movement has been significantly improved this season, but the consistency with his shooting has got to be better. Then you look at the three-point percentage, taking the top 30 in attempts there in terms of per game. Tatum is third, by the way, at 9.4. By the way, all the guys in the top five in terms of three-point percent in three-point attempts are 37% or better besides Tatum, who's at 35.5%. So you look at the numbers overall, again, he's 18th of 30 guys in terms of guys in the top 30 in attempts per game from three-point territory. The other high volume guys, Lillard 11.3 is at 37.5. Clay's at 10.7. He's at 40.8. Mitchell's at 9.4. He's at 38.3. Tatum's down there at 35.5%. So those are the top four guys in attempts per game in terms of qualifiers. Curry doesn't even qualify for this because he hasn't taken it up. He hasn't played enough games. But the point being is Tatum, from a shooting perspective, he has not had a great year. And I'm hoping that what we saw against the Blazers is a sign of things to come because that's what stuck out to me last night. He had one of these really good games where he's three of seven on pull-up threes, which is 42.9%. That's outstanding. So the reason I bring this up with Tatum is he has pretty much been the worst high-volume pull-up shooter in the league this year. Entering Wednesday, he had taken the six most pull-up threes in the league. Of the players that had taken at least 125 pull-up threes, there's 44 of them. Tatum ranked 44th in percentage, so dead last at 289 Then you look at the pull-ups in general. 47 players have taken at least 300 pull-up jumpers. He's at 40.3% in terms of his effective field goal percentage, 45th of 47. Traditional field goal percentage, 30.4%, dead last among those 47 players that have taken at least 300 pull-up jumpers. So the evidence that Tatum has been the worst pull-up jump shooter in the league, it's there. The good news is we've seen him get red hot, right? Last season, March through the end of the year on pull-ups, 62 or I should say he shot 47% from the field. He was 43 of 98 from three-point territory, 43.9%, and his effective field goal percentage was 63.3%. So those are elite numbers, but we only saw that March through the end of the season. And I just wonder sometimes when we see these great shooting nights from Tatum, is it a tease or are we going to get this sort of run for an extended period of time? Because we haven't gotten that run as a shooter this season where it's consistently he's shooting like crazy for a month and a half like we saw at the end of last season. So there's hope he can get back to the guy that we saw against the Blazers, and we can see that more often. He can do it a bunch. But this is why I harp so much on the free throw shooting with Tatum and the foul drawing with Tatum, because he isn't Steph or Durant or even Kyrie Irving as a shooter. 
So he needs to get those free throw attempts, right? And you look at Tatum, he's jumped from 26.9 points per game this season up to 30.3. The numbers, the reason why, it's because his free throw attempts, right? Made free throws per game this year, 7.2. That's seventh in the NBA. Last year, he's at 5.3, which is 12th. So that scoring average being up 3.4 points, a major reason for that is the foul drawing, getting to the free throw line more. And post All-Star break, he hasn't been doing that. Last night, it was a shooting clinic, which I really enjoyed. I just wonder if it's a tease, right? Because throughout the season, we've seen he has struggled in terms of being a pull-up shooter. You look at pre-All-Star break, 8.6 free throws per game, seventh in the NBA post in the last seven games he's played. He's at just 6.6, which is 19th in the NBA. So he's getting to the line. Basically, he's down a trip per game, which he needs to get to if he wants to keep that scoring average up. And ironically, he's dropped two points per game since the All-Star break because he's not getting to the free throw line nearly enough. So my whole thing is I hope we see a run like Tatum had at the end of last season from a shooting perspective because then he becomes unguardable. But we have a pretty large sample size that tells us he's an inefficient, high-volume pull-up shooter. So as much as I enjoyed the game against the Blazers, I still believe getting to the free-throw line is the better bet than just hoping his pull-up numbers and overall shooting gets better. And we know he can live at the line. We saw it most of the season, right? And this is where I give Tatum a ton of credit. Like, he's been incredible this season despite the shooting numbers not being great. He now has that hardened move where he holds the ball out and he draws fouls. And now he's got this hesitation dribble that's a real weapon. Where you saw it last night, what he does is he'll lull the defender back with his hesitation and just explode by him. He actually talked to Doris Burke about this on that all-access thing where he did it to Embiid. Once he gets the defender leaning towards him, he can explode right by him and either he's getting to the basket or he's getting to the free throw line. So Tatum's made a ton of improvements. I just wonder if taking as many pull-up jump shots as he does, if that's useful or he should cut back and get to the free throw line more. All right, so I found this interesting because Derek White was kind of in a mini shooting slump, if you will. And I love now, unlike last year, it doesn't affect him. He'll just keep shooting. Like last year, he would stop shooting. His three-point numbers in his last six games, four of 25, 16%. And on the season, by the way, he's well above average, 37.2%. Last year, it felt like when he missed shots, you just lost the player. And this year, that's not the case. Some of that is the work he puts in, but it's also another year of being comfortable with this group. It isn't easy to just come over to a team that was the best in the league last year for the stretch run, right? Like with Brogdon, he got a launching pad. He had an offseason with this team. So he totally understood what his role was going to be, when what the Celtics do offensively, what they do defensively. And he got to learn the information prior to the season, what they wanted from him. With White, he had come over at the trading deadline, which remember is not even close to the halfway point of the season. And it's like, hey, you got to learn everything on the fly and you got to find a way to fit in, right? There had to be part of him last year that it's like, I just don't want to fuck this up if I'm Derek White. And when he was missing shots, there was probably a part of him that thought, hey, should I be doing this? Do they want me to keep shooting? And when Ime would yank him in the postseason after some of those misses, I probably would assume that it got worse for Derek White, right? Like he put more pressure on himself in terms of his shooting where it affected other areas of his game where he's so good in so many different areas that the shooting just weighed on him. And this year that's not happening, which I give Missoula credit for that. He plays through the slumps with Derek White in terms of his three-point shooting. I give Missoula a ton of credit for that. And I know I've criticized Missoula, but I will give him credit for Derek White, enabling him and telling him, keep shooting, man. Like the game on Wednesday, he goes for 21 points, seven assists, and five rebounds despite the poor shooting from deep. Just a couple of things that stuck out to me in that game. Early in the game, makes a cut, gets to the free throw line, and one. Just read the defense. Then he got a screen from Al, reads that they're dropping, 
and takes a floater because Nurkic is deep in the lane. He actually gets hit from behind, hits the floater, and gets to the line. Okay, then he had a nice hit-ahead pass from Jalen. That's just a heady play where he sees Jalen breaking out after he gets a rebound, tosses to Jalen, Jalen gets a layup. He set a ball screen for Tatum. They blitz Tatum at the top of the key. They double him. So he rolls to the basket, catches the ball from Tatum, immediately throws to Al. Al gets an easy dunk at the rim, which is... Exactly like the type of player that Derek White is. Everything he does has a reason for it. Everything he does is smart, right? So I talked about those fourth quarter numbers, and I'm going to monitor those. Another thing I'm going to monitor is something with Derek White. So White, from my perspective, is the easiest guy on this roster to play with, right? Because he can play point, he can play off the ball, he'll screen off the ball and on the ball, and he plays great defense. Smart's a great passer and a great screener, but he's not a great off-the-ball player with White, and White has been the far superior defensive player this season. And I think White being good at everything is why the numbers are so good with him on the floor, where he can just adapt to any personnel. So these numbers are worth watching, right? So everyone on the team has good numbers with Tatum. That's just obvious because he's by far the best player on the team. But how do guys play with the two superstars, right? So I found this interesting. When Derek White is off the floor, and Marcus Smart is on the floor with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. They have a 113.5 offensive rating and a 119 defensive rating. So they're getting outscored by 5.5 points per 100 possessions when Marcus Smart's on the floor with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown without Derek White. That should not be happening when Smart's on the floor with your two stars, right? By the way, there are only four teams in the NBA this year that have a net rating worse than 5.5. The Hornets, the Pistons, the Rockets, and the Spurs. So basically, the teams that are in the Wembenyana sweepstakes, if you will. And that's the level that the Celtics are playing with when Derek White's off the floor and the two superstars are on the floor with Marcus Smart. And the Celtics with Tatum, Brown, and Smart are playing at that sort of level. It's just mind-boggling to me. It's kind of wild. And that's in 508 minutes. It's not a small sample size. It's actually a large sample size. So how about if you add White? to that group. Those three players, 434 minutes with White and with Jalen and with Tatum and Smart. They outscore teams by 10.2 points per 100 possessions. Right. Really, really good. They're playing better than the league's best offense and like a top five defense with all four of them on the floor. All right. Well, what if you subtract Marcus Smart and you have White, Tatum and Brown on the court without Marcus Smart? What are those numbers like? Well, in 312 minutes, they have a 118.4 offensive rating a 105.6 defensive rating, and a plus 12.8 net rating. So about three and a half points better than the league's best defense, and only Sacramento has a better offense than those numbers. So smart play is great when it's him, Tatum, and not Jalen, right? Everybody does that, as I alluded to. But if you look at with Derek White, I mean, it's unbelievable what those numbers are because the role is clear, right? Set things up for Tatum. You're going to have the ball a lot if you're Marcus Smart playing with just Tatum. But when it's Smart, Jalen, and Tatum, ideally he would play off the ball more, but that's not Smart's strength, right? Like ideally when you have Tatum and Jalen on the floor, you want Marcus playing a little bit more off the ball than he ordinarily would, which is one of the superstars, but that's not really his game. So I believe with White, he can adapt to all situations. He can take a back seat knowing that he can do great things off the ball, whether it's screening, whether, as I alluded to with that cut last night, and with Smart, he can't really space. White now is an improved shooter. He actually can space the floor because if you leave him open, he's going to knock open a three. He can screen, but with White, he can also attack second side action, right? Like if White gets the ball swung to him, he can attack, get in the lane and get to the basket. Marcus Smart's really not good at that. And the difference is that White has that really good floater, right? He's a threat to score all the time, unlike Marcus Smart. Now, 
Marcus, when is he really a threat to score? I would say in the post, that's pretty much it, right? He's not like constantly beating guys off the dribble. White is a threat off the dribble. And now in a catch and shoot situation, unlike Marcus and the defensive numbers, why they're better with White, that's obvious. White's just right now, he's flat out better defensively than Marcus is. And this is not meant to be a shot at Marcus Smart, an indictment on Marcus Smart. It's supposed to highlight how pliable White is with different lineups and how good he's been for this team this season because he can sort of fit his game with any type of player. And Marcus Smart can't really do that at the level Derek White can. So that's just something I'm going to monitor going forward. That's weird that the numbers are so bad with Smart, Jalen, and Tatum. Oh, and real quickly, another observation from Wednesday. The roller coaster with Grant Williams continues. He didn't play until the fourth quarter. Then he got eight shots up. Hit a three right away, then hit a step back to his left and had a nice quarterback keeper, if you will, for the and one where he like he faked the handoff, got in the lane for an and one. Felt like that was sort of a message to Joe Mazzula, like, hey, uh, Joe, play me more like I'm getting my shots up when I get in this game. Now, Jared Weiss from The Athletic reported that Grant's dealing with a ligament strain in his shooting elbow and he's dealing with inflammation. We knew he had an elbow issue, but now it's sort of highlighted what's going on. Kind of funny that he talked about it like the day after that he missed those free throws. But anyway, he said it's a weird injury, but you play through it because that's what you do for the team. It doesn't matter if your numbers go down. It doesn't matter if your minutes go down because you just do whatever it takes to help the team win. Okay, great quote and all that. But it is funny that he's he's talking now. I'm not saying he's trying to get sympathy, but now he's explaining after he misses the free throws. Anyway, he said... Shots feeling good, medicine helps, so it's just a matter of continuing to be confident and continuing to shoot the way I am. Okay, so the confidence thing to me is the biggest thing here. That's why I said earlier this week he should be playing a more, Joe Mazzulla should. The player's confidence right now is shot. He admitted he's going to keep his confidence up. So how does not playing him last night until the fourth quarter, A, help Grant, B, help your team because they know they need him in the postseason. I just feel like this whole thing with Grant, it's not useful to the team. You have 15 games left to play Grant Williams more, right? And Joe Mazzulla said today that Grant's role isn't about anything he's doing, but rather the Celtics returning to full health. He said they're going to need everybody to perform in the playoffs. That's my exact point. You're going to need Grant Williams specifically to perform in the playoffs, so play him more minutes. I don't get it. The other Mazzulla thing is he was doing his weekly spot on 98.5 The Sports Hub, and our guy Ted Johnson, who we've had on here several times to talk Patriots, of course, He asked Joe Mazzulla about sleeping with duct tape on his mouth. Apparently he does this. There's sleep tape. I guess it's a thing. The endorsers say it helps with deeper sleep and less snoring, less cavities too, I guess. I don't know. The whole thing just seems weird to me. I just think it's been a weird couple of weeks for Joe Mazzulla. And this kind of tops everything off, right? We'll find out the guy sleeping with duct tape on his mouth. I mean, I don't know what that's about. I mean, maybe you sleep with duct tape on your mouth. Apparently some athletes do it. It's just a bizarre thing. To me, and in everything that's going on with the Celtics, we get this information yesterday. Just a weird, weird situation for this team right now. All right, coming up next, we'll get into the Red Sox. We'll chat with Julian McWilliams from the Globe. He's down in Fort Myers. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us from the Globe, from sunny Fort Myers, it is Julian McWilliams. Julian, how are you, man? I'm good, man. I know you guys had, like, my wife was complaining about some of the, the snow up there earlier, in, like, wait, last week or something like that? So, yep. yeah. <laughs> Other than that, I'm good. I've been I've been hearing the the wrath from that, but other than that, I'm I'm well. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. So hey, let's start with this because the most important thing here, Julian, is we keep hearing from back here in Massachusetts that the vibes are great. You're in Fort Myers right now, so it can you confirm this? Is the energy is it really good with this Red Sox team? Because we keep hearing about the positive vibes. 
I guess. I mean, it's it's spring training, right? And it's it's kind of it's interesting because you see so many new faces and so many different like like you know like Justin Turner was with you know Dodgers last year, like Kenley Jansen with the Dodgers last year, like Joey Rodriguez, like you know wasn't with the Red Sox last year. So it's just like so many different pieces to the puzzle that you necessarily don't necessarily see the fit just yet because they just haven't been been together for so long. And now you have like you couple that with the WBC and players being gone. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough to really get a read on this clubhouse right now, but, you know, obviously I, I know I, I've read some stuff where people saying, you know, the vibes are great, but I think the vibe is great for anybody in spring training, you know, that the yeah. Red Sox haven't lost to this point, you know, I haven't checked the score now, um, but um, you know, leading up until what, what is today, Thursday, they hadn't lost. I, I guess that's something that you could look at, but it probably isn't at the same time. So you take everything with a grain of salt in, in spring training because, you know, spring training, but I think, Opening day is, is is three weeks, basically three weeks away right now. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I felt like they really dodged a bullet the other day, Julian, and you were there. But just watching it on TV, that Justin Turner thing, that was so scary. I can't believe that all that happened, not all, I mean, obviously it's serious, but 16 stitches, yeah. but no broken bones and all his scans came back fine. I was shocked to get that. I thought for sure he broke some bone in his face. Yeah, and, and immediately, like, you saw, like, him drop and like the ball didn't necessarily like leave the vicinity, like, right. Like, and, and that's like, that's yeah. like sort of like a sign where it just like hits you. And then like, it doesn't ricochet anywhere. It just hits and then drops. So you're like, Oh man, like that's definitely like an orbital bone or something. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that nothing happened. Cause it was definitely, definitely scary scene. There's a lot of blood. Like it was, and you you saw in me, like the trainer, um, their lead trainer, Brandon Henry, you know, him motion to the bench. You hear him say towel, towel, towel. Cause it was just so much blood coming out. So, I'm happy. I'm happy that, you know, it's just it's like the way we saw it, that, that considering all the situations it's just it's just 16 stitches because it looked like you said, it looked a lot, lot worse. Yeah. I mean, the only unfortunate part is, you know, you miss getting at bats in the in spring training now. So he's going to be behind the eight ball as we get closer yeah. to the season. But I did want to get to Chris Sale because I thought he looked phenomenal the other day. Now, one of the issues I've had throughout the spring training and I know it's not it's not the Red Sox fault but we don't have like baseball savant for a lot of these games so yeah. I know on the radar gun he hit 96 and then he hit 95 a couple of times as well he had that nasty backdoor slider for a strikeout and from like all the reporting that you guys put out there from Fort Myers it did seem like he was throwing 95 94 96 which is more similar to the guy that we saw pre-injury going all the way back to 2018 so I'm starting to get excited about it. I said the other day that I, I feel like sale day may be an actual actual thing again. And I know it's two innings in a spring training game. Like I may sound like an idiot in two weeks for saying this because he falls off another bike or something along those lines. But I and I loved him too. Like coming off the mound, he was laughing, he was smiling. What if what did you make, not just of the performance, but where Chris Sale's at right now? All right. If you want to talk about vibes, like Chris Sale is the ultimate feel-good vibes guy now. It's interesting. Like it's <laughs> I mean, it, it's you know, it's, it's you feel like it's like a, a scene out of like a you know a, a Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting talking about like just <laughs> life and stuff. Just the way he can just like he ta he's always been had perspective and on things and always been really really good where you can get him, but you could never ever really catch Chris Sale like right. He's like he was in and out the clubhouse because I mean he's Chris Sale right. Like it's a lot a lot of people probably wanted to talk to him. Now like you can get Chris like Chris Sale's like immediately available all the time to anybody like not just like his you know press conference after he like pitches or something like that or his like standard you know spring training press conference I mean he's there and he's like 
giving you all the like, man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm playing baseball again. There are people in the world that I'm doing, you know, that there's sick children and, you know, in, in Africa, like he goes through all this, this, this whole, this perspective thing. So it's good to see that side of him. Um, yeah. And obviously he's always had, like, he's been very, very, um, you know, he's just, a, he's just a relatable person. I think a lot of people on the outside, my friends are like, is he a jerk? And I'm like, no, actually not at all. Like he's, he's actually like one of the more like guys that you like, yo, he's a money, money quote every time he talks. Now he's just money all the time. So uh, from the vibes perspective, yes, it's, it's awesome. Um, from the pitching perspective, I think, again, like, I, I think that the thing with them is that they want to see how he bounces back. Right. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. like the two innings here. Cause I mean, he hasn't pitched since last July. So of course the arms probably gonna be feeling a little good. The juice is flowing a little bit more, but how, what does that look like on a, on a five day schedule? So I think we'll get right. more of a hint of what that is, um, as spring training goes along, but I mean, he looks really, really good. I mean, like you said, the back foot slider that would, that he's known to do the 95, 96. Uh, he looked like the sale of all. He was going from this. He was going from the stretch. And I asked him about that. He said he's going from the stretch because, you know, he's just trying to get his mechanics and everything down right now before he, Interesting. he, he puts in like, you know, his the actual, you know, full his full delivery, his full motion. So I think or go from the wind up. So I think now he's just sort of like trying to simplify things and keep things really, really simple before just sort of graduating to the next thing, because obviously, you know, that's going to, that's going to be the real test is when he is, when he graduates to going into the windup and then, you know, going four or five innings, you know, uh, no deep in the spring training, then the season being around the corner and then him having to pitch in cold weather, you know, so it's a lot of different variables that, that we're talking about here that we're going to see that for Chris sale to be the Chris sale of old. But if he can be anything, you know, close to that, or probably even like 75%, 70% of that, I think you have a number one starter there. And I think that anybody will legitimately say that's a number one starter. Yeah, no doubt. It'd be a major win for the organization if he bounces back and could be the guy at the top end of the rotation. It's a great point, a great note on the day after, too, because Cora always references that. Like, oh, it, it looked good. Let's see how he how he looks tomorrow. Let's see how he bounces back when he actually gets into a real major league game and he pitches six innings. Let's see what his next start looks like after really not doing it for a significant amount of time. All right, so this rotation... Whitlock making his way back. Bayo making his way back as well. Paxton is unfortunately dealing with an injury who I actually thought he looked good before he, he went down with the injury. Like, I mean, and I was he starting did. to think about, I'm looking up his numbers from like pre-injuries. I'm like 17th or 19. He's seventh in strikeout rate in Major League Baseball. I'm starting to get excited. Then he goes down with an injury. So are we looking at the first time through here in no particular order, Sale, Kluber, Pavetta, Hauk, and maybe Crawford? Would Crawford get the fifth start? I mean, how do you think it pans yeah. out for the first couple of weeks here? Yeah, I think they definitely go with Crawford over Sale, Winkowski, or something like that. Especially, you know, Crawford's look really, really good um, these last, you know, two two games. In two games. Granted, I know, again, we always have to say we know it's spring training, but if we're looking from a rotation perspective and performance, I mean – from those based off his last two performances, he deserves it. He deserves a shot in the rotation, at least as a number five starter until possibly a Paxton comes back or something like that, or, um, or, or Bayo's ready, but, uh, or, or, or yeah, yeah. Paxton or Bayo. Um, but I think, I think if we're looking at like that from a perspective of, of, of just having, um, you know, him in that situation, I think we're looking at a guy that can, possibly give a guy for you know he had a really good july into august i think last year where he had he was a really great. good stretch of his six seven games yeah right? yeah he so, was great and i love the way he hide like he hides the ball he's he's a difficult he at bat because it comes from he a does. weird angle he does and so i think and i think he's has that he has that one year of of true like big league experience under his belt 
And I think he can t- sort of hold, hold down the fort until, you know, some of the other guys get back. I mean, he's a, he's a, I think he's a quality starter. Alex Spear wrote a good story on him, I think, about how the Red Sox, you know, how they identify players and sort of want to cultivate talent and have guys and develop pitchers. And they used him as the example because you're talking about a guy that was like, you know, went to Florida Gulf Coast, not that big of a guy. And that's a, that, and they got him on, they just developed him, right? It's not, it's not, he doesn't have any like, otherworldly talents, you know, but they developed him into being a big league pitcher, or, you know, big league starter, big league reliever, whatever you want to call him. And I think for that, for this situation, for say a couple, three, four weeks or whatever, first month of the season, I think he, he could easily handle the spot because he was put in a lot of big pressure situations last year when they had nothing, um, you know, so I think, so I think just putting him in this situation, I think he could be able to handle it, especially yeah, with those it- other guys around him. Yeah, and with Winkowski, it's like he just can't miss a bat. I mean, he refuses to miss bats. So, I, I mean, I can't justify it. Like Crawford was – and I almost feel bad for Crawford that he wasn't going to like make – probably wasn't going to make the team to begin with, right? Because they have yeah. all these relievers that they've added. So I'm glad he's going to get a chance. And maybe he'll get to the point where it's like we can't put this guy down because he's too valuable to the club. I hope he pitches the way he did for that stretch that you referenced last year. All right, so – Brandon Walter was nasty in the first two innings on Wednesday night against Puerto Rico, then kind of lost command, although, Julian, you were there. I thought he kind of got squeezed a little bit. Maybe that's just me, like, being biased towards the Red Sox, but I did think he got slightly squeezed. But the point being, the stuff was nasty. Mata, his stuff looks filthy, and, I mean, that fastball is absolutely live. So what do you think, or what type of role, what role down the road do we see for these two guys in 2023, if any at all? I think with Mata, that's a big one. Uh, Cora mentioned him, said the biggest thing with him, similar to Hauk, is, is um, you know, just being able to throw strikes, right? And I think that's going to be the separation between him as a starter or if he's a reliever. Um, he, interestingly enough, he throws really hard, but, like, he doesn't really miss that many bats a lot of times. And I think that he sort of reminds me of a um, kind of a, a Frankie Montas. I covered mm. Frankie in, in Oakland, where Frankie, you know, his first, I guess – couple of years you know with the with the A's he was kind of up and down the elevator between the majors and minors and then he he wasn't really missing bats even though he threw 98 99 miles per hour and then I think Edwin Jackson um the longtime pitcher who was one of his mentors said hey man like I think you really need to develop like you know a splitter you know a splitter that you can put into your arsenal once he developed that splitter and had that different action that different movement that vertical movement um I think that sort of you know, elevated his fastball in a sense, kind of similar to a Nate Evaldi, right? Where you say Nate, like, yeah, he threw 99, 98, 99. He didn't miss that many bats. So, and I think Nate, as he got, as he got older, you saw him develop into like sort of this guy who had, you know, more pitches and he started missing a little bit more bats. So I think that's going to be sort of the separation with him is just ability to be able to throw strikes, ability to miss bats. But again, his stuff was dynamite. Walter, I think, I think you're looking at a guy that's probably, Fringe probably for for those next two years. I don't necessarily see him as a as a starter. You know, things could possibly change, but I think those are more so. He's more so a depth depth piece. It's something that I would see as a depth piece, depth piece right now. But I think I think Mata's the guy that you can say, okay, can he be a num- number two or say a number two or number three starter, or is he a reliever? And I think that's sort of, sort of like that similar scenario that Hauk is in, where it's like, is he a starter or a reliever? He's going to get a chance to be a starter, but he's going to have to prove that he can throw strikes. So that that that's gonna be that's gonna be the situation for Mata, I think. Yeah, I do really enjoy though in spring training, and you're there, like getting to watch all these young guys pitch. It is pretty fun, and also getting to see it's Rodriguez awesome. pitch yesterday. It's like 
you can tell why they wanted that guy. Like his stuff is nasty when he's on. I mean, his changeup is filthy. We'll see if he can throw. I mean, his one issue throughout his career has been throwing strikes. So we'll see if he can throw strikes. But exactly the, the changeup exactly. and the stuff, it's definitely there. Exactly. And the core mentioned that yesterday after the game. He was like, "Yeah, if we can keep this guy around the plate, like it's some, it's 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 something there, right?" I think, you know, with with him, I think it's just a matter of like, again, like you said, location, 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 because. We've seen a lot with a lot of Red Sox relievers, uh, you know, even like a Darwin's and Hernandez. Like we're looking up and saying, wow, this guy is going to be somebody in like, what was it, 2020, 2021? And next yeah. thing you're looking up, he's DFA'd now. It's like, well, he couldn't throw strikes, right? And his stuff, he had to keep his stuff. Then it's all of a sudden his stuff just started getting hit. So I think you're looking at a situation with, with Joyley Rodriguez. I mean, he's a veteran. He's been there before. He knows what to do. Uh, it's just a matter of him applying it. And like you said, last night he was he was really, really filthy. I saw Darwinson walked like four guys in the WBC. I'm like, I'm glad I'm not watching that anymore. Mm. I mean, <laughs> I'm really mm. glad I don't have to watch that mm. anymore. So, hey, you had an article up at the Globe on Rymel Tapia and his chances at making the team. So entering Thursday, he's 7 of 17, 412. And I get it at spring training, but he does have a bomb. We know the Sox. He killed the Sox last year to be flying around the bases. Uh, one of the things that sticks out, he doesn't walk. 3.7% walk rate last year, which was... 203rd out of 205 players have got at least 400 plate appearance. He, he is going to swing. Uh, he had struggled defensively too last year, 42nd of 51 outfielders in defensive run save. But obviously he looks really good at the plate. I don't know why his defensive numbers aren't great because obviously he's a very athletic guy that comes with a lot of speed. So you look at the outfield right now after the starting group of Duvall, Verdugo, and Yoshida, you have Ref Snyder, who of course the guy clobbers left-handed pitching. He's obviously going to be here. Duran you have, and other than that, there's really not a lot of depth there. So you think Tapia ends up making the team? I think Tapia makes the team. Um, and I, if you look at his overall numbers, I mean, he's I know he played in Colorado for all that time, but he's a career 277 hitter. I, I mean, that, that has to count for something, especially if you're looking for guys that, um, you know, I think the walk rate, it's, it's sort of like he has that little bit of um, – D Gordon in him where like the walk rate is down because he can literally like put his bat on anything. Yeah. And I think that sort of works against him where he can just like put his bat on anything worse. He's taking the walk. You know, he's like, Oh, I'm, I can put my bat on this. So I'm going to just go ahead and just try to shoot this the other way. It ends up being an out. But I think with him, I, I, I just don't see how you deny that. Right. And I think the interesting thing is that I've been questioning all spring is why is Duran at the WBC? Right. And, and I like Duran. I like yeah. Duran. I like Duran. I think he's has the potential to be a he they gave him the keys last year to, to the center field. He, he didn't. He, he's been open about how he struggled with that and mentally, um, and, you know, and, and, and physically, obviously, obviously the tools are there, but the results weren't. But my question is, why are you at the WBC to be a, a bench player when you can be here getting at bats because you have people that are that. Verdugo's gone to the WBC. Uh, you know, Yoshida's gone to the WBC. Um, all those guys are gone. Here's your chance to, sh to show yourself, what, what, to show the managers, hey, this is what I can do. This is who I am. Meanwhile, you have Ramel Tapia here who's clobbering the ball, right? And so, and, and getting all the reps that he can, you know? Yep. And so I think, I think you look at that situation, I'm saying, okay, Duran has what? I think he has one more option, I believe, or one or two more options. I'm not sure. Either one or two. Um, and, and, and Tapia is on a minor league deal, which I believe he has an opt out of on the 25th, I believe if he does, if, if they agree not to have him on the team. So I don't necessarily think that they'll give him up because he was a steal in the first place. 
The Red right. Sox were, were, were surprised that he was available. You know, and, and Cora was surprised. Cora last night said, or said like, or a couple nights ago said, you know, he was a, he's a steal for their organization. So you have a situation with Duran where it's like, okay, you're at the WBC and, and you're a bench player. But meanwhile, again, like I said, you have Ramel Tapio over here who, you know, hit a ball the other way last night. The wind was gusting. That, that wind was pulling in like crazy. That ball that he hit that was in the air perhaps might have been not been gone, might, might not have been gone. I thought it was gone off the bat. There were a couple of balls I hit out the right field that I thought were gone. That one specifically I thought was gone as well. So he squared the ball twice in that game. He continues to hit. And I'm looking at a situation like Duran, man, like you should be here. You know, you, you should be getting these reps. This, just, this should be your, your time to say, I'm going to get these reps. And he's not. So that's an interesting situation to look at moving forward. I'm with you, man. It makes perfect sense. And the other thing about Duran, we saw, and it looked good, where he switched the hand placement, where he's holding his hands when he's at the plate, or like the elevation of where the bat is. So you would think that you would want to work on that in spring training. It just, I'm with you. It doesn't feel like the right choice for Duran. Like, it's one thing for Kike to do it or Rafael Devers to do it. Although I did like the core said, yeah, he's not playing first base. He can play third (laughs) base. We're not having him getting injured playing first base. That would have been a complete. Remember Arroyo a couple years ago? Never played first. They put him at first and he tried to stretch it. He got hurt. He stretched and he got hurt. I remember that. Yeah. So I'm glad that we got, I'm glad that Cora made that decision. Yeah. Hey, uh, okay. You guys can have Rafi, but he's not playing first base. So that was good. But yeah, I'm with you on the Duran thing. He should, he shouldn't, he should be with the team. If he wants to be like a contributor, he should be with the team right now. All right. So last time we had you on, we talked about Casas a little bit and it's like we said, yeah, I love him. I I think he's a stud. I think he's going to be an all-star. I'm putting that on your show. I think he's going to be an all-star. Wow. Multiple, multiple time all-star. I just, I, 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 I love that kid. I, I, I love everything he's about. He's so awkward, <laughs> but it's great. <laughs> like it's, he beats to his own drum. Like he just sits there and spaces out and just like, just looks. And it's just like, he looks like he's like considering life and just like all of its possibilities. <laughs> he's just completely in his own baseball world. And I, 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 lo- I love him. I think he's going to be, I think he's going to be a star. Well, and here's the thing, like we know about like the walks. I've referenced that a million times. But the other thing is just, you know what I notice is the power is so easy for him. Like he can be late and hit the ball the opposite way out of the ballpark, which that's like a very unique talent in Major League Baseball. Not a lot of guys can do that, right? You're late. Okay, maybe you get a hit the opposite way, but it's very rare to see somebody be late and be able to hit it out of the ballpark the way they cast this can. And I really, I've said this before. I think that he could be the most important player on this team. Like if he can be a 25 to 30 home run guy this season, it totally changes the outlook of the lineup in general. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I, and I spoke to, and I went up to him yesterday and I said, and I was like, dude, like, you know, what? I'm like, I'm most impressed with like about your at bats is like, not your swings, like, but like the takes, right? Like how he dominates, how like, and Cora said that said, said an interesting thing yesterday. He said, he dominates the strike zone. The strike zone does not dominate him. And like, I, and I know like the walks, he had the walks last year uh, and stuff like that. But, and, but, and you, you could tell he was trying to figure out the lead. Right. And, and he, but he was still able to get his walks. Now, again, with the qualifier, we know it's spring training, but, the dominance of the at bat and seeing it's it's sort of like and I don't want to make this a comparison but like I'm gonna make it uh Ortiz in his last season where he just knew something was a ball and he was just like no I'm laying off that like and he was like halfway to first base when it when it immediately left the pitcher's hand 
Now, it's not to that extreme, obviously, but you can tell he understands the strike zone. He understands how pitchers are trying to attack him. He understands what he wants to do. You know, he, he, go, he got into some deep thing with me yesterday. He said, like, look, like in the beginning of the game, it's sort of like a boxer for him, right? Like, he's like, it's like a Floyd Mayweather. Like, well, like, I'll let you win the first couple of rounds. Like, I'm figuring it out. But as many I get more at-bats and more reps to figure out how you want to do, how you're going to approach me throughout the game, I'm going to then start to attack. So that's how he treats all of his at-bats, right? It's just like a slow progression to get to where he wants. And he, he sort of considers the, the situation, how many runners are on base, what he needs to do, if he needs to get him over. I mean, he thinks he thinks like a like a hit, like a complete hitter. And I think this is a guy, just based on his confidence, man, um, I think he's going to be a, a really, really, really good player. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, when Cora put him in the leadoff spot. It kind of reminded me of, like, the Schwarber situation where yeah. Schwarber doesn't look like a leadoff hitter, right? But they hit him leadoff, and he was really good for he the Red Sox. gets on base. Yeah, he gets on base, and, <laughs> and he hits bombs. Like, it, it's, a, yeah. it's a great combination to have. So the other, the newcomer, Yoshida, who, of course, now is at the WBC, I thought at the beginning of spring training when Cora said that thing about, ah, he's more of a middle-of-the-order guy, not a leadoff guy. I was like, oh, Okay, so how do you think this lineup shakes out? I mean, I guess it could change with righties and lefties, but who do you think hits leadoff? Is Kike the most likely candidate? I know like they had uh, uh, Arroyo's been getting some buzz. The only thing I look at with Arroyo is he swings at everything too. I mean, he doesn't strike out, but it's not like yeah. he's not going to take a lot of pit. Neither, I mean, Kike's a pretty free swinger too, but who do you think ends up hitting leadoff? Oof. I mean, that's a that's that's kind of a tough one. I mean, I, th- I think... I ultimately thought it would have to be Yoshida that hit leadoff based on based on yes. just his like his projections and, and his profile and and maybe that's 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 what he uh, you know that's sort of what the, the where they go to but I think the main thing for the Red Sox is trying to protect Rafi right having that batter behind Rafi that that's able to whether it's like you know Yoshida or Turner or having somebody in front of him that's be able to stack those two. Um, so for right now, I, I could see, you know, possibly, uh, you know, uh, I, I guess, you know, I, I thought Yoshida, I, I mean, I'm, I'm completely lost with this lineup, to be honest with you. I, I don't I don't know where Cora goes. He hasn't necessarily hinted at, he's gave hints at certain things, but like, I think, um, I just thought Yoshida would be the best profile. Is there, is there a person that you think that that should be, had been lead off? My guess is I, that I, he... I can't, I can't, I can't go with Kike anymore. I think they've tried that and I think that hasn't. You know, I, uh, that that hasn't necessarily worked out. I think they need to go with somebody that's that's a uh, you know Yoshida. I, that's what I thought it would be. My guess is he ends up landing on Kike though, at least oh to start gosh. the season. I think he will. I, you know who actually? Oh my god! I, I kind of. You done with that? I'm a little. I'm, I'm a little Kike'd out. I'm oh really? Kike'd out. <laughs> I'm, a, we're a little, I'm a little bit Kike'd out. Like I he's a lot, huh? It's it's a lot. It, it, the the entire situation is is a lot, right? It's, <laughs> the, the, it's a lot. <laughs> the the leadership thing and all this all this other stuff. I I get it. Like it's he's a great utility player. Yeah, thirty two years old. Like he, and he's been a utility player through this. It wasn't because he was with the Dodgers. It's because that's the best role for him. Um, and granted, on this team, it they calls for a different situation. But I mean, landing on Kike, I think. You know, he, I mean, he, he's had, he's, he's, he's hot and cold. Um, and I think that's something that we're going to look at. Uh, you're going to see throughout the season is that something's hot and cold. And interesting enough, I think it's like Kenneth's hip hold up. I mean, you know, you're playing shortstop, a lot of wear and tear, a lot of moving. I think he's never played it over 60 games. And then you're going to bat him lead off to, I think, 
you know, we're, 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 it's, it's, it's going to be interesting how that, how that shapes out. Yeah. That to me is one of the big questions with this team, right? Because we know that he's an elite outfielder from a defensive perspective, but it's only what 618 career innings at shortstop. And on yeah. the other side of 30, you ordinarily don't get your opportunity to be an everyday shortstop, right? That would usually come no. like maybe at the latest, like 27, not at in your 30s, right? So to me, I feel just like off, that. Just off hip surgery where you missed, we only played in like 94 games last year. So it's a yeah, fair question. But, and there's not a ton of depth there, right? Like you have Arroyo who's going to be our everyday second baseman. We'll see what happens with Mondesi, but it's not like you have a lot of other alternatives outside of Kike, and he really needs to hold up because of the injury to Story. Oh, that would have been a candidate, by the way, if he was healthy. Absolutely. Story, Story would have been a candidate. I, I would have put Story. I think this team is like, that. that's what's really missing from this team is Trevor Story, right? From us being able to see a full picture of what a team could look like is 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 a person like Trevor Story. And I think Cora always talks about, he loves George Springer. Like George Springer is his guy. That's his prototypical I love him too. Hitter. I do too. I, I love George. Um, prototypical leadoff hitter. A guy from out the gate, it's like, boom, it's on. Like, I might be coming out of my socks on the first pitch. You be ready. Like, you know, be ready. I'm going, right? He loves those type of hitters. The closest person to that story, I believe. I mean, I, I think George is a better hitter. There's not as much swing and miss. But if you're looking at somebody that can pop you on the first pitch on the first game where you have to be ready to go, it's Trevor Story. If you and if you include his athleticism, his speed, yeah, I mean that's a guy that I think could you know that could be work out really really well in that spot. And that's unfortunate because we haven't been able to see that full picture. And you see it on glimpses, and you're like, oh man, that's what that's what that is right there. And, yeah, and we haven't been able to see that. Yeah, and he can swipe bags, which is obviously something that this team doesn't. Remember two years ago, Christian Vasquez led the team in stolen bases. <laughs> I remember oh, that was, was like... And then he kept stealing, and then he started getting thrown out. Like, it's like, people, <laughs> like, it's like he's like, because like, he, he got the eight stolen bases because people are like, oh, crap, Christian Vasquez is stealing on us. Huh. And then he's like, maybe I can steal bases. And they're like, oh, no, we're looking for it now. Out. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. yeah. Another, that's, that's another guy for the leadoff job is... If they could have got him, this guy from the Dodgers, Mookie Betts, he would he would have fit in well yeah, at the top. That, that would have been great. That <laughs> would have get... been that would have been awesome. You mean a future Hall of Famer? That's, that's yeah. That's, that would they... that would have worked out really well. Yeah, he's an MVP. I forget who we got MVP for. Won a bunch of Gold Gloves for, but exactly. maybe yeah. I, I'm actually te I'm like tempted by the Cassis thing, by the way, just because he sees so many pitches. I, I know they don't want to go that's lefty lefty probably with him and. Raffy at the top of that lineup, but I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm tempted. I, I think there'll be a point this season where he gets like a stretch where he's the leadoff guy because they'll probably be going through leadoff hitters and he'll get an yeah. opportunity at some point to yeah, lead off. A, now that I think about it, they have a ton of lefties. Like it's Verdugo, Yoshida, yeah. Casas. Um, it's like it's like completely opposite of the Yankees a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, yeah, McGuire. So it's McGuire. So it's like, who do you put in that? And because if you, even if you bat Raffy third. I know they probably want to keep Turner behind him. Yeah. Or maybe in front, either in front or behind. I think they want to stack those two together just so you had some protection in there. Um, but it's it's going to be interesting how they sort of like piece that together. Yeah, I like I just like having Rafi second and I rather I have him, I rather have him clean up than third just because like 
So is so often he would if you're hitting third, you'll come up and there's nobody on base in the first inning, right? And so it just yeah. takes away like an RBI opportunity right there. So I rather have him hit second or fourth because all right, if it's a one, two, three inning in the first, well, then he leads off the next inning and you got to pitch yeah. to him in that particular case. I rather him I want him to hit second, but if he's not hitting second, I'd like him to hit fourth rather than be like super concerned right. about because at some point with all these lefties, That's you're going to have to go lefty lefty. So yeah. at that point, I mean, it makes sense. All right. So before I let you go, I wanted to get to the catching situation because I feel like this is sort of under the radar. Mm. Connor Wong has an injury right now. Reese McGuire, we know he hit the shit out of the ball after the trade last year. 337, 377 OBP. And Alfaro has never really done much with the bat. But And I was looking at Baseball Savant now released this new feature, catcher blocking. So McGuire was minus three last year, which was 52nd. Alfaro was minus seven, which was 60th. Now, McGuire's been a really good framer throughout it. He's been like an, an, yeah. an unreal framer. He was plus three with the Red Sox last year, and he wasn't here that long. Alfaro was 15th at minus two. Uh, Alfaro does have good pop time. He was third. Wong was ninth. McGuire, 36. And I don't see McGuire being the hitter he was last year. He's a 256 mm-hmm. career hitter. But I do like him defensively. I think he actually calls a good game, too. I actually felt like he calls a better game than Christian Vasquez. Alfaro, some of those defensive numbers are scary. So I'm a little yeah. bit worried about this catching position entering the season. It it does feel like I know that they're going to want to platoon guys, obviously, but it does feel like there's a lot of pressure on Reese McGuire to be similar to the guy he was last year. Yeah, there is. And I think with Long having an option, I think he's probably and he's injured and, it's, you know, whatever. I think it's, it's that's likely the guy that's going to get sent down. I think Alfaro makes a team. I mean, I've, I've looked like Alfaro has some some thump and the arm is a, the arm is elite. And yeah. he's been working, working with Jason Veritek nonstop. Like you constantly see those two working together. So there are a couple of things that the Red Sox think that they can do to sort of tweak that. And, you know, Cora hints that they think they have the best catching coach in all of baseball and Veritek to be able to show them that, to be able to show them the True. numbers. Like, you know, Veritek is a guy that, that sits there. He's not just like a, you know, a field guy. Like he's a very, he's kind of a nerd. And you see him sitting there with his spreadsheets and stuff like that, his booklets and he goes out there you know, sits down with the catchers at the table in the, in the clubhouse and goes through that stuff. So he's been working. I mean, that's that's a guy that's been really working. I think he has some experience playing on really good teams. Um, that that helps for something he played with. You know, I think he had, what, 400 some odd of played appearances last year with the, the Padres. He has experience, you know, calling games. But, um, you know, I think it's probably even similar to like a Ploiecki situation where, you know, Ploiecki may have not been, I guess, the – like the the numbers of his and his catching weren't that good, but like you know, if you look at the guys that he caught between like you know Bauer, and I'm naming naming all these these bad guys now, but Bauer, Harvey, you know Degrom, um, yeah. you know all those guys. I think that's that sort of like spoke to like his you know his his level of experience. Now Wong is a very 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 like smart catcher, and I think that they like the fact that like his receiving skills, the way he has this little sort of like slow heartbeat. He's, he's very, very smart, knows what the pitchers are doing. So I think when he's ready, um, you know, that could be an option for them, for them to come up and then if our thing doesn't work out, cool. You sign to a minor league deal, like, you know, like, like, you know, wipe yeah. your hands, you know, dry and, and move on. But I think that just looking at the situation right now, if I were probably the person to make the team, but I definitely think, like you said, it is, it is a concern. I think the catching, even, even with the Reese McGuire, I think, I think that's a little bit of a concern too, considering, you know, the fact that, I, you know, it's, it's just it's just tough that they don't really have like a like a catcher, like yeah. like a legitimate, legitimate catcher. And you're going into the season with all these sort of 
um, you know, question marks to your pitching staff. Because the one thing about Ploiecki, and I don't mean to like harbor on this, is that you knew pitchers like throwing to him. Um, you knew pitchers like communicating to him. You knew pitchers like he knew what they could do and how they can apply it. Um, you know, I know it's early in spring, but last night, I mean, a couple of nights ago, Taryn Hout got, you know, two uh, violations because him and Reese weren't on the same page. So by the season time, you hope that clears up. But I think the catching situation is the biggest hole. Yeah. And I do remember two years ago in 2021 when like almost I think it was four out of the five like rotation guys, their ERAs were better with Ploiecki than they were with yeah. Christian Vasquez. Like it was yeah. and especially like. Pavetta's was like drastic. It was almost like two yeah. runs difference when he went with Ploiecki compared to when he went with Vasquez. And then remember, if I'm not mistaken, the wild card game that Evaldi started, didn't they start Ploiecki just because they Ploiecki did. caught Evaldi, right? They did. They did. The, the Ploiecki was the uh, like was like the the pitching whisperer. You know what I mean? You yeah. can run on him. I could run on him. Like I can <laughs> run on him right Yo. now. But <laughs> but. But they oh my like God! The Lollipops he, down a second, dude. He, yeah, but they like the fact that that pitchers like throwing to him. He could. He's he's really really smart. I mean, I love Pawecki. I think he's probably a future manager in the league because, like, yeah. for for a guy that didn't necessarily have like the the the, the immense skill set, he he definitely was a was one of the leaders within that was one of the leaders within that clubhouse. No doubt. No doubt. All right. That is Julian McWilliams of the Globe. Thanks so much for the time, man. Enjoy spring training. You going to watch any of the WBC? I am. Well, was it like at 5 a.m.? Yeah, they're all like weird times, but yeah, I'm not. Nah, I'm be honest. I'm checking out on that, man. I'm good. I have enough baseball. So, yeah, I'll 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 I'll, I'll leave that to to uh, to some other people. But, yeah, it's obviously a great thing. I think it's good that, um, you know, you even see like the it just brings a different element of a game, different culture of the game. You saw last night even. Um, you know, at, at JetBlue with like, you know, they're parading around sort of the, you know, the, the stadium and, and the bells and everything. So it means a lot to, I think, a lot of, lot of other countries, a lot of, a lot more other countries. And I think that, you know, we as, as people that have baseball on a daily basis in, in the U.S., I think we need to be to realize that. But yeah, man, I'm going to be asleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I'll watch it when it gets like closer to the finals. And I am excited if it's, uh, Dominican versus the U.S. in the finals because obviously both those teams. Oh yeah, I watched that. I watched stacked that. rosters. I think, I, I think the Dominicans going to score a shit ton of runs, but then they're going to oh, give man. up a shit ton of runs because yeah, they, they have no pitching. But so I think after Alcantara, I think it's it sort of like drops off after that. But we'll see, man. We'll see. It's exciting though. It's, it's definitely it's definitely it brings a different vibe and a different element of baseball that that we don't see on a daily basis. No doubt, Bogart seems to be loving. He had a home run, and he was talking about Did how. He? Yeah, he had a home run, so we'll see. Dude, we'll I missed see. that guy, man. I missed, I, I missed that guy. And, and, and Sedan Raffaella. That's a guy that we should watch. I think in center field, it's, I'll just say, it's not JBJ, but it's JBJ-like. Like, it's, it's running oh. to the spot. It's running to the spot, not diving. Like, you know those balls that got to the fence that Kike would just be running for, running, running, and then, like, he'll just make this catch? But that JBJ was sort of under, like yeah. you know, just got there with like and could like chew sunflower seeds at the same time. That's Rafael. That's that's what you're looking at. The defense is elite. Wow, I'm excited for this guy too because I mean he flew up the prospect rankings. Like in the Red Sox organization, he's all the way up to third behind Meyer and Cassis. So that's exciting that he's that. And I heard like his hands are lightning too. Like it, the they bat are. speed's ridiculous. 
They are swing. Swing can get a little bit long, um, mm. and I think they'll 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 that. But that's an adjustment I have to make. But the the overall skill set, man, the speed, the pop, the just the awareness in the outfield. I saw him make a play the other day, and just knowing he didn't have a runner at third, a runner at home, he hit the cutoff man at you know with, to to stop the runner from going to third. And that's the stuff that I look at. I'm like, okay, like he gets it. Like he's just not trying to airmail. He's not. He's just not yeah. trying to like Hunter Renfro himself, you know, to the, you know, <laughs> like just airmail into the to home plate and getting a guy he doesn't get in the the, the runner from second if it then advances to third. No, he made the right play, kept the throw low, and you know, hit the cutoff man. And I'm like, okay, like this guy gets it. It's it's elite, man. I think when you get a chance to get out there to like a to to a game to watch him this year, maybe in the minors, it's you you'll see it. It's like wow, this this guy's impressive. Yeah, I'm getting excited. I'm just getting excited seeing the videos of him. So I cannot wait till he's a member of like the big league club. Julian, yeah. thanks so much for the time, man. It was great. For sure. And Casas, all-star. Component. Boom. All right, coming up next, we'll get into the possibility of Aaron Rodgers coming into the AFC East. We'll get to a voicemail or two. And we'll update you on our FanDuel. I wish I could have bet on that bracket. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Julian McWilliams. Man, I cannot wait for opening day. We are getting closer to opening day. I'm getting a little bit optimistic about this Red Sox team, so cannot wait for opening day just around the corner and a healthy Chris Sale, baby. All right, we do have time for a call, so let's get to that. The number is 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Hey, Brian. This is Reed from St. Louis. Uh, I'm calling just mainly about the Celtics and their troubles ever since the All-Star break. Uh, yeah, I think defensive identity has just been really up and down, left and right throughout the year. Obviously, last year we made our living off Rob Will, you know, being a wing defender and guarding the corner or being on the block and help defense pretty much all the time, and then we were switching. But now, like, we just have no identity because, like you mentioned in our previous podcast, Marcus Smart has been really, really bad this year in comparison to what he was last year. And we just have had inconsistencies when it comes to our rotation and and our scheme. And I think defensively, that's what is going to hold us back. We have to turn it up when it comes to playoff time because that's what our identity was to get to the finals. This whole, you know, we're going to run on our offense, like our offensive juice. Like we, we we definitely need to keep up the the way we're playing, but change our scheme, shoot a little bit less threes, get to the line more, like, you know, back to our kind of, like, grind style and, you know, really eke out a lot of wins versus, you know, just trying to shoot us back in the game with a bunch of threes and, you know, not attacking the basket, really. But, yeah, I think defense, we have to really step it up, and I think if our defense starts to step up, our offense will get easier baskets, you know, we'll draw more fouls, get more open shots, like, in the lane. But yeah, Joe Missoula, you have to call timeouts, man. This is ridiculous. Like, I can't believe we had two timeouts left with seven seconds. Whoopsie freaking do. But yeah. Uh, great show, Brian. Uh, let's go Celtics and let's go Pats. All right, great stuff there. And yeah, the timeout thing, it's going to be a question all the way into the postseason until, quite frankly, it's not a problem because at certain times you can definitely point to issues where he didn't use his timeouts. We've done it over and over again. As it pertains to the defense, a lot of good stuff there. I do think it's difficult to have the same level of defense you did a year ago, no matter what the personnel is, but especially considering that Robert Williams, your most impactful and best defensive player, has played in only 28 games. And when this team really turned into the defensive juggernaut that it was last year, 
They were good before this, but it's when Ime took Rob Williams off the big man, put Al on the big man, and let essentially Robert Williams be that roamer defender that could just come over and muck everything up and block all the shots, right? That's what Robert Williams was really good at. So it is difficult when you don't have that. But one thing I have noticed post-All-Star break and entering that game Wednesday, the Celtics were 29th in opponent free throw attempts since the All-Star break, right? That ranked 29th, or I should say they were 29th in the league. Pre-All-Star break, they were first in terms of they fouled less than anybody else in the NBA. They got to get back to a team that's not fouling a lot. Now, of course, Portland, you kind of throw that game out because that team is just such a disaster. But the point being is this team, the point of attack defense, the on-ball defense has got to be better. And I do wonder if some of that would be masked if you actually had Robert Williams. But the reality is this, they have just got to be better on the defensive end of the floor and there's got to be more effort there and there's certainly got to be less fouling. All right, great stuff there. And by the way, if you do want to leave us a voicemail, that number is 617-396-7172. You can also email, of course, at offthepike at gmail.com. All right, so I did want to get to this. ESPN is reporting, and Diana Rossini in particular, that Aaron Rodgers had an extensive in-person meeting with Woody Johnson. There is optimism in the Jets organization that they're on the brink of landing him. So you look at that Jets team. The Patriots beat them, of course, 10-3 in the walk-off punt return game. And in the other game, they beat him when Zach Wilson threw three interceptions, and that score is just 22 to 17. Okay, so the Jets, if you look at that team last year, they were fifth in football outsiders metric DVOA on defense. They were fourth in DVOA and pass defense, right? And then you look at their offense, they were 26 in DVOA. They were terrible. They were anemic from an offensive perspective. And remember, they even lost their running back, Brees Hall, who was having an outstanding season to a torn ACL. He was at 5.8 yards per carry. He's going to be coming back. They just had both the offensive rookie of the year in Garrett Wilson and the defensive rookie of the year in Sauce Gardner this past season. Okay, Wilson, by the way, was ranked ninth overall as a receiver by Pro Football Focus. I'm not saying it's the be-all, end-all, but it sort of matches the eye test, doesn't it? We saw Garrett Wilson against the Patriots. That guy's really fucking good. He's a game changer. So, so many teams in the NFL can say, hey, we're a quarterback away. The Jets really were. Zach Wilson ranked 34th of 34 quarterbacks in passer rating that qualified at 72.8. He was horrible. I mean, those interceptions he threw against the Patriots, he just literally was falling out of bounds and threw one to Devin McCourty. He held the team back. Rodgers, I get it. His numbers were down last year. But two years ago, he's the MVP. 111.9 passer rating, led the league. 68.9 percentage in terms of his completion percentage. 37 touchdowns, just four picks. And if you look at Rodgers, I understand that he's crazy, but I do think we're going to see a guy that is similar to if this deal goes through, which who knows with Aaron Rodgers, but it does look like they're on the finishing line of the Jets landing Aaron Rodgers. There's just way too much smoke here, right? And the reporting also entails, according to Diana Rossini, they're talking about compensation right now, the Jets and the Packers. So I do think we see Rodgers, that version of the MVP, or at least closer closer to the MVP than the guy that we saw last year, right? And even if, say, he's hypothetically 85% of the MVP guy, the Jets make the playoffs, right? They, if they have an average quarterback last season, they make the playoffs. Now we're talking about a guy that can play like an upper echelon quarterback in the league compared to the guy they had last year, who was legitimately the worst quarterback in the NFL. So just looking at this from a Patriots lens, it's bad for the Patriots, right? The Bills right now are on another level. They have a top five guy in Josh Allen. The Dolphins added a great defensive coordinator in Vic Vangio. Like, that was a problem for them last year. And in the final year in Denver, when he was the head coach, Denver was third in defense in terms of points. In Chicago, final year, it was at one. 
his last 11 years as a defensive coordinator, head coach, five top three defenses. So he's definitely going to help when it comes to that. And Tua, remember last year, after they got Mike McDaniel and added a guy like Tyree Kill, he had a 105.5 passer rating, third in the NFL. And of course, he ended the season with an injury, but they're all in on him coming back based on everything they've said, and they're not going after any quarterback. So they clearly believe he's going to be back. Hill, by the way, was an all-pro, first-team all-pro this past season. And the Pats, remember, when they beat the Dolphins, it was with Bridgewater and Skylar Thompson. So now if you look at it, you have three teams that are more talented than you if you're the Patriots, three teams with better quarterbacks if you're the Patriots, and it's great that you have Bill O'Brien, but Mark Daniels reported that the Patriots are not in on Lamar Jackson. Hefty price, by the way, two first-round picks based on the tag that they gave him, and you're going to have to pay $40 million per season, somewhere around that, and he wants a fully guaranteed contract. But here's my point on that. If Mac doesn't dramatically improve, aren't you having to find an elite quarterback next offseason to keep up in the division? Lamar, by the way, is 45 and 16. So he wins 73.8% of his games. This guy's a lock to get to the postseason. So I get why the Patriots aren't doing it. I just feel like this team is really, really, really going to need to upgrade around Mac Jones in order to even compete in the division now. And the easier avenue to me than having like this stack roster is have the elite quarterback. Those teams are ordered early in the postseason, right? So lastly, with the Rodgers thing, I've heard a ton of comparisons with Tom Brady, like, oh, this is like Brady going to Tampa. So to me, yes, like this is a situation where, okay, they were a quarterback away. They're getting the quarterback like Tampa was. And these teams tried through the draft with Jameis Winston for Tampa, with Zach Wilson and Sam Darnold for the Jets. So they've drafted really well around the quarterback. They just need the right guy. So I understand that. The one thing I would caution people on is, the teammate, the winner that Tom is compared to Aaron, it's sort of on a different level. Like Tom elevates the room from a culture standpoint. Rogers certainly doesn't do that, but a huge move. This would be massive for the Jets. And we can laugh at the Jets all we want, but this is smart, right? And the other component to this from Robert Kraft's perspective, the Patriots have become the least interesting team of the division. You shrug your shoulders. You're like, okay, yeah, this is like a decent football team. The Jets now have a four-time MVP if this deal goes through. The Bills have Josh Allen, and the Dolphins have a million weapons, and they have a quarterback in Tua that took a massive step last season. So the Patriots are now like almost a boring team. Like even Max rookie season, it was exciting because, hey, this is new. Even when Cam came here, it was like somewhat exciting before the season actually happened, and we realized Cam couldn't play because it's like, oh, this is Cam Newton, former MVP. Let's see how he does take it over for Tom Brady. It's just not a very interesting team right now. All right, before we go, I did want to get to this because it's been a ton of fun. FanDuel's coming to Massachusetts, and you guys have been able to participate, and I wish I could have bet on that bracket. And these are some of the best moments in Boston sports over the past 20 years. And you guys, by the way, have done a fantastic job voting on the Ringer's Twitter account. So just to refresh, FanDuel gave me the odds for eight different games, and we set up a fun bracket to figure out which one is the favorite. Today, we're down to the finals, baby. We are in the finals. So make sure you keep voting like you guys have been doing the whole time. Go to the Ringer Twitter account where you can find that poll and vote on which game you wish you could have bet on. All right, so the semifinal matchups, man, we had a couple of blowouts. The Patriots-Falcons Super Bowl took out the Patriots-Rams Super Bowl, of course, the first Super Bowl for the Patriots. They got 81% of the vote to the Patriots and the Falcons, and I know that was an epic comeback, 28-3, to but I was slightly surprised that the Patriots-Falcons beat the Patriots-Rams by that much, considering that was the first one. That's what started the whole dynasty, right? But anyway, in our other semifinal game, the 1C, the 0-4 Red Sox come back against the Yankees, beat the number 5 seed, the Patriots-Seahawks, the Malcolm Butler game, of course. The 0-4 Sox comeback took 89% of the vote. Not surprised by that one, right? Because, I mean, that was 
just an epic series for the Red Sox to come back. And so I'm not surprised by that one. But the finals, man, this is going to be juicy. Two epic comebacks. You have the Patriots and the Falcons Super Bowl 28 to three, of course, set a record and the Red Sox Yankee series, which set a record. No team had ever come back from 3-0 before. And it happened against the New York Yankees. So we will have those results for you, of course, on Sunday's pod. Make sure to head to the Ringer Twitter account to vote in the poll. Also, head to FanDuel.com slash Mass to sign up for their great pre-live offers and get yourself ready for the launch. 21 plus and present in Massachusetts. Gambling problem? Hope is here. Gambling helpline MA.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you on Sunday.